Welcome to our Friday night Bible study, Basics for Bible Believers. This will be lesson number eight, and our lesson tonight is entitled, After Salvation. And so this is going to be telling you what the Bible says to do and uh, what we need to do after salvation. So let's go to the Lord first in a word of prayer, then we'll get started. Let's pray. Amen. All right, so tonight we are uh, on the point of after salvation. This is our seventh uh, point uh, in Basics for Bible Believers. And this is after salvation. So the first thing that uh, we want to talk about is water baptism. Water baptism. So if you got your Bible there, let's turn to Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 16. 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 The Bible says in Matthew chapter 3, I'll give you a moment to get there. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16, first book of your New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were open unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And so we see there that, uh, that this is uh, a water baptism. Uh, look at uh, Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8 is our next place. So you got Matthew in your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter number 8. Many of you will recognize the placement of this being the place where we see the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Bible says there that he was traveling back from uh, Jerusalem before he went up to worship and as he traveled back he was reading in his chariot and uh, of course Philip popped into the chariot there with him and witnessed to him and gave him the sense of the scripture and he understood that he needed to be saved and um, the Bible says that um, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 36 and as they went on their way they came unto certain water unto a certain water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, that was the confession. You say, why? He got saved first, verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So one of the first steps of obedience for the new Christian is to be baptized. Water baptism, of course, let's state some things first. Water baptism is not a part of salvation. It's not a part of salvation, water baptism. But rather, it's an outward symbol of something that has already taken place. Namely, namely this, dying to self, receiving new life in Jesus Christ, and thereby raised from the dead. When you were lost, you were dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2. And when you got saved, you were raised from the dead to walk in Christ. To walk in Christ. That's what happens when you get saved. So we want to emphasize the term believer's baptism. Believer's baptism. Baptism is not 
for infants or for unbelievers. It's for believers. It's not for unbelievers. It's not for uh, infants and children. You say, why? Well, just look at our text right there in Acts chapter 8. And uh, let's put this to the test. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, Acts chapter 8 and verse 36 is the culmination of Philip preaching and showing him the scriptures. Uh, one thing a baby can't read. Amen? They can't understand what's taking place. They don't have the comprehension uh, to, to know that. So if we look up at verse 33, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? There's complex thought involved. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest. Now, can you imagine talking to a baby and the baby's there and it's goo goo gaga. No response. You say, That sounds silly. Exactly. The act of salvation is belief in your heart. It's making a profession and a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Not being sprinkled by a priest, not being dunked into the water by a priest when you're a baby. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't even know, even attempt to know the number of, of how many million people have been damned to hell because they were trusting that infant baptism when they were a baby. How many people have I talked to that said, and I asked them, are you born again? Are you saved? Sir or ma'am? And they said, well, I've been baptized. And uh, you, you say, that's, that's crazy. Yes, because they're trusting that baptism. That baptism cannot, water baptism, whether you're an infant, an adult, a believer or non-believer, water baptism cannot save you. It's not, um, uh, an act of, it's not a part of salvation. And so that's why we use the term believer's baptism. You see, in verse number 37, And Philip said, If thou, what? Believest. That's where we get the term. That's why we say that. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, What? I believe. Now, you're going to talk to a six-week-old baby, a six-month-old baby, and they're going to say, I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. No, of course not. You say, uh, you say, what happens when you question people on this? They say, well, my parents had faith for me. It was my parents' faith. Listen, uh, viewer, the person that's out there, your parents' faith cannot save you. Your parents' faith is, is, is maybe good for them, but it's not good for you. It's not going to save your soul. Amen? Salvation is a personal choice. It's a personal belief. You notice there, and I know it sounds so simple and elementary, but if you look at the text in verse 37, he said, I believe. Amen? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It wasn't the profession of parents on the Ethiopian eunuch's behalf or anybody else's that was saying, we believe for him or he believes. And that's not the way salvation works. That's not the way baptism works amen that's not the way it works and so we use the term believers baptism and so believe uh, baptism uh, water baptism is not for infants or for unbelievers infant baptism is unscriptural you can look high you can look low you can look wherever you want in the bible 
and you will not find a place where a baby is being baptized. An infant, you won't find it. Yet it's practiced all over the world and by many different religions and sects and cults and accepted. Isn't that crazy? Uh, it's, it's, absolute cra it's absolute nonsense to just invent something. And uh, usually it's invented to, uh, quote-unquote, wash away original sin. Now, that's, I know we're getting into a little bit of a deep Bible study here. I, I don't re didn't really mean to go in here, but I want to show you something. Hold your place uh, there. Um, well, just, just go ahead and leave, it, leave uh, Acts 8 and go to Romans chapter number um, Romans chapter number 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 and verse number 15. You say, why can't a baby be baptized, Pastor? Why is that unscriptural? Well, the scripture tells you here. Romans chapter 4 and verse number 15. If you remember in the garden, Adam and Eve were there in the garden and they were walking around naked. Uh, and they were not ashamed, the Bible says. And as they walked around in the garden naked, uh, they were not ashamed and, and they, they didn't think to cover up. You say, why? Because they were innocent. And a baby, until a certain time, uh, he doesn't realize that, uh, you know, you take a two- or three-year-old baby, they can, uh, infant, they can walk through uh, with thousands of people and be stark naked and have no shame or even realization that they've done anything um, strange or, or weird to them. They will have no shame. And that's innocence. They're innocent. Adam and Eve in the garden, they were innocent. And you say, why? Because there was no law there. There was no, uh, um, there was no law against walking around naked. See what the Bible says. Romans chapter 4 and verse number 15. The Bible says, because the law worketh wrath. For where, it, where no law is, there is no transgression where no where where no law is for where no law is there is no transgression now if that's not enough for you look over at romans chapter 5 and verse 13 romans chapter 5 and verse 13 for until the law just across the page for until the law sin was in the world but sin is not imputed it's not counted to that person it's not against that person when there is no law. Those children, they don't understand law. They don't understand that they've sinned against God, the, that, that their sin is against God. And so, therefore, they're in a place... You say, are they saved, preacher? Are babies saved? No, they're safe. Uh, they're, they're not saved, S-A-V-E-D. They're S-A-F-E. They're safe. Safe in the arms of Jesus Christ. Safe. Uh, there, you say, so what happens if they die? Uh, straight ticket to heaven. Amen. There's no question about it. And so they're safe, uh, safe in Jesus Christ. So we, we emphasize that. We tell you that because it's a scriptural principle. Amen? Scriptural principle. Now, so you say, what else do we say here about baptism, preacher? Well, we, we also, according to the Bible, we emphasize baptism by immersion. By immersion. You say, why is that? Uh, you say, why? Well, because it's a picture of the believer being buried with Christ. Take your Bible there, your Romans 5, turn over to Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1. Um, well, not verse 1, let, let's look at verse number two, 3. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ 
were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness, the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Amen? And so we emphasize baptism by immersion. You say, what does that mean? That means the water uh, is a picture of someone dying. It's a picture. It's a picture of Jesus Christ, uh, death, burial, resurrection. And it's a picture of, that water is a picture of going underground. You say, what happened with Jesus Christ when he died? They put him in that tomb. He went under the ground. And then three days later, he rose. And so we do that in the act of baptism. We go down under the water and resurrect. We're buried with him in baptism, raised to walk, like the Bible says there, in the newness of life. Raised to walk in the newness of life at the end of verse number 4. And so it's a picture of being buried. Uh, and now the, the obvious thing is, is the, if that's a picture... How many dead men do you see uh, laid against the tree, you know, sitting up against the tree? They lay their body there, and they go by and sprinkle some dirt on their head. Uh, it's not by sprinkling. It's by full immersion. Amen? That's where the picture gets. Uh, you don't see people uh, throwing dead bodies into, into the uh, graveyard and then taking a shovel and, and just sprinkling some dirt on top and leaving their bodies for the birds to eat. No, that's not, that's not a picture of, of death and burial. Amen? You say, so what? The water should completely cover the believer. A man is buried by being completely covered with dirt. Being completely covered with dirt. So baptism is two ordinances of the New Testament. Two ordinances of the New Testament church. The other is being the Lord's Supper. So you got two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And you say, what's an ordinance? An ordinance is a religious rite ordained the ordinance, ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important to remember that an ordinance is an outward symbol to be observed in obedience to a divine mandate in the Word of God. I'll read that again. It's important to remember that an ordinance is an outward symbol to be observed in obedience to a divine mandate in the Word of God. So ordinances, you say, what, what is an, uh, and that's, that's the definition of an ordinance. But keep in mind, an ordinance is not a sacrament. Ordinances are not sacraments. You say, why? Well, a sacrament, this is important, a sacrament is a means and channel of saving grace. And uh, some churches and some teachers try to make uh, baptism, a channel of saving grace, and try to make the Lord's Supper or communion a channel of saving grace. It is not. The Lord never intended that. The Lord never set that up as such. And so um, some make baptism and the Lord's Supper a, a, a sacrament. It's not. So it's not scriptural to do that. The ordinances are symbols, not sacraments. Symbols, not sacraments. And you say, what do you mean by symbol? Baptism is a picture. 
Baptism is a picture, much like the ones you have in your home. A picture is not the real person. You can go up there and talk to that picture and give it a kiss and do whatever you want, but that's not the real person. That's not the real thing. Uh, you say, what is it? Uh, it makes you and reminds you of the real person or the real thing, but it's not that. Amen? Baptism is not the real death, the real burial, and the real resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it does picture uh, those events in the life of the, of the Christian and in the life of the believer. Amen? And so we saw that in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 6, if you want to read that. There's, it's a picture. And so another example of water baptism, um, meaning that, that picture and what it does, could be your wedding ring. could be your wedding ring. The ring doesn't actually seal uh, the marriage. Uh, you can take that ring off and I'm still married. I can put it on or I can put it on a different finger. I'm still married. Say, so what does that do? That reminds the world... That reminds me that, that that's a picture. That's a picture. That's a symbol. Uh, of that. It, it doesn't seal the marriage, but it's a symbol. And it sends a message to the world that you are married. That you are married. Baptism says to, the, uh, to those present that you are dying to self. Amen? And uh, you're, you say, what does it also picture? Romans 7 talks about divorcing the law. Uh, you're dead, divorcing the law, and that you are resurrected by the Holy Spirit. And after you've divorced the law, you marry Jesus Christ. Amen? And uh, while we're there, we're in Romans 6. Look over at Romans 7 and verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren... Ye also are become dead to the law. That's what I just told you. By the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who, raised, who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, verse 5, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. So again, in verse chapter 6 and verse 4, at the end of the verse, walk in the newness of life, and uh, Romans 7 verse 6, that we should serve in the newness of spirit. Amen? Uh, the Bible tells us in Corinthians that uh, when you get saved, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become... New, amen. The newness of life and the newness of spirit. Boy, what a what an example, what a uh, a way to put it. When I got saved, man, it was like the Lord brought color uh, to to the world. I uh, remember the day, I remember the hour that I got saved, and how I was in darkness and the lights were turned on, and I started realizing things, and I started 
uh, feeling brand new. You say, why? That burden of sin was gone. That load that I carried was gone. I took it to Jesus Christ and He took the burden. Amen? And He saved my soul and He wrote my name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And boy, it was a new day. Hallelujah. And so because of that, just like a wedding, uh, the act of baptism is a public one and is one of the first steps of obedience for the new Christian. It therefore involves a personal obligation on the part of the believer to promote the cause of Jesus Christ as a member of his body, the church. And so turn over in your Bible to Ephesians. You're in Romans. Turn to your right uh, and get the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 4. And verse number 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. So the one baptism of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 is the baptism of the Holy Spirit which puts every true believer into the body of Christ. So you've got Ephesians there. Turn back to your left a couple of books to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 13. The Bible says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. And so the one baptism of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that puts every true believer into the body of Jesus Christ. Now the Holy Spirit places you in the church, the body of Christ, immediately upon your salvation. Immediately. The moment you get saved, you are baptized into Jesus Christ at that very moment. Amen? Now, turn over back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now at that moment, did anybody see that take place? No, they did not. They didn't see that spiritual baptism take place. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, there is no water present. Amen? There's no water present. Some people say, oh, you're, you're saved by water. Not according to the Bible. You're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that in Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and the Bible says in verse number, uh, look, at, look down at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 13. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, 
So you heard the word of truth, and you say, what did that cause you to do? That caused you to trust, trust the gospel of your salvation. Amen? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 to 4. In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And so the Holy Spirit has the... Uh, has a part that he plays in your salvation. You say, what is that? He baptizes you and seals you the very moment that you get saved. Lots of things happen to you. You become a new creature. Your, la- your name's written down in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? With indelible ink. It can't be erased. It can't be taken out. Praise God. And so the Holy Spirit does that. Look at Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. Back to your left. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and let's look at verse number 9. Romans chapter 8, and verse number 9. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, and verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And so we see that uh, Jesus Christ enters into you and you enter into him immediately upon your salvation. The Holy Spirit places you in the church into the body of Christ. Amen? So this is what takes place after salvation. So the water baptism and... The water baptism is mentioned here. Okay, so here's some questions for you. Number one, is water baptism essential for salvation? Is water baptism essential for salvation? And that's just simple yes or no. Is water baptism, according to the Bible, is it essential for salvation? No, it is not. Number two, Number two, should babies be baptized? Should babies be baptized? Should babies be baptized? No, no, they should not be. I know some people that uh, they come from religious, uh, they come from a religious home and family members, cousins, aunties, and uncles, and that. And you have a child, you get married, you're happily married, you have a child, and uh, next thing you know, they say, oh, when are you getting the baby christened? When are you getting the baby baptized? And you're like, that's not scriptural. They'll get very angry, very upset, because they think you're jeopardizing that baby's soul, and if it dies without that, that um, religious baptism, that sprinkling, then that baby's going to go to hell. And uh, you say, that's unscriptural. So should babies be baptized? No, they should not be. And you say, um, next, number three, I won't get off topic. So number three, is sprinkling, sprinkling water, is sprinkling just as scriptural as immersion? Is sprinkling just as scriptural as immersion? Yes or no? No, it is not scriptural. It's not scriptural. And so we, you just take note of that. 
Okay, number four. What are the two ordinances of the New Testament church? What are the two ordinances? There's two we mentioned. Two ordinances. Two ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Or communion, you might say. That's the two ordinances that Jesus Christ set up for the New Testament church. Number five. Is baptism a sacrament? Is baptism a sacrament? I'll give you a second to think about that. Is baptism a sacrament? No, it is not a sacrament. You say, what is it? It's an ordinance. It's an ordinance. If you looked at number four uh, and picked up on that, you would have got that one built in. Number five, uh, so that was number five. Number six, what is the one baptism of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4? What is the one baptism of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4? What's the one baptism? The one baptism. So which one is that? That is a spiritual baptism, the spirit baptism. And that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. That's the one baptism. That's a spirit baptism, Holy Spirit baptism into Christ. Number seven, does every true believer have the Holy Spirit? Does every true believer have the Holy Spirit? The very last verse we looked at in the study would have told you that one, the answer to that. Does every true believer have the Holy Spirit? Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 will give you that answer. And you say, yes, every true believer has the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's where the Bible says there, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Amen? Say, why? Well, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Amen? And God, uh, God's seal cannot be broken. Not until He wants to break it. And so... If you want to memorize one, uh, a verse, um, I would encourage you to memorize 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, which we looked at. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 13. At least make a mark in your Bible so you know where to find it, because that's a very important verse in your New Testament. Very important. All right, that was, lesson, that was the point number seven in our Basics for Bible Believers. And so we've still got some time here, about halfway through our, our study time. So we'll continue on uh, to our eighth point, which is communion or the Lord's Supper. Communion or the Lord's Supper. They, the, the word is interchangeable. And so if you've got your Bible there, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 16. So remember that the that baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper is 
Uh, those two things, you say, what are they? They're ordinances. They're ordinances. And it's a symbolic thing that's taking place. Symbolic. Uh, just like your wedding ring, just like that baptism, it's a symbol. Just like the pictures in your house. It's a, pic it's a symbolic thing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 16. The Bible says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So the cup and the and the bot and the cup and the bread are both uh, the Bible called the communion of the body of Christ. The communion of the body of Christ. And so we observe that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act representing something that has already taken place. Namely, the believer has received Jesus Christ and has been forgiven by trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. As with baptism, the Lord's Supper is for believers, is for believers and has no part in salvation, has no part in salvation. Just, just the same way with water baptism. It's a symbol and has no part in salvation. Uh, I know I've talked to some people, and um, especially Catholics, and I've asked them before, and their priest instructed them to say this, they told me. And I say, are you born again? Have you ever been saved? And they said, yes, every week. I get born again, I get saved every week when I go in and I take that communion. And if I stop taking that, then I lose my salvation. And they take that communion thinking it's the literal blood and literal body of Christ. But the Bible says it's a symbolic act. It's, a sim it's, it's picturing something. It's a symbol. Um, look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 35. The book of John in your New Testament. John chapter 6 and verse 35. Let's look at some things here uh, of note. Jesus Christ is called the bread of life. John chapter 6 and verse number 35. John chapter 6 and verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now let me ask you something. Was Jesus Christ walking around uh, a walking around loaf of bread? No, in the Bible there's a lot of symbology that you have to pay attention to. The Bible calls Jesus Christ the chief cornerstone. Well, was he a real cornerstone or was that symbolic? Was that picturing something? Was he trying to teach something? Same thing when he says um, he the Bible says that he was the the rock that followed them in the Old Testament with Moses, the rock that followed them, was Christ. Well, was he a physical rock bouncing through the, the desert, boing, 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 boing? No, it was symbolic. It's symbolic. And so you have to keep those things in mind. Okay, so Jesus Christ is called the bread of life. And look at, he's also not only the bread of life, he's our high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 14. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 14. The Bible says, 
in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Amen. And so the Bible teaches us and shows us that Jesus is called the bread of life. And as our high priest, you say, what did he do? He shed his own blood as an atonement for our sin. He shed his own blood as an atonement for our sin. Look at Hebrews, um, at Hebrews chapter 9. So in Hebrews 4, look over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 11. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. Give you a moment to get there. Hebrews 9, 11, The Bible says, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, and entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Amen. So he's called the bread of life, and as our high priest, uh, he shed his own blood as an atonement for our sins. Let's see it again. Colossians, hold your place in Hebrews 9. We'll be back there, and just turn over to your left to the book of Colossians, chapter number 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 14. If you're going to get saved, it's going to have to be through the blood. Uh, some preachers and some uh, people that don't know how to rightly handle the Word of God, they say, oh, the blood of Christ is not important. Uh, John MacArthur makes that statement. Uh, I hate to tell you, if you're a fan of his, he's not a Bible believer. He doesn't believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. And he puts down the blood of Christ and minimize, minimizes it and said, Oh, you don't need the blood of Christ to be saved. You know what that tells me? John MacArthur's most likely lost. Ooh, some of you upset at that. If you minimize the blood of Christ, look what the Bible says. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14, In whom we have redemption... Through His blood. Amen. Even the forgiveness of sins. Your sins are not forgiven if they haven't been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. It takes the blood. It takes the blood. Without His shed blood, we could not be forgiven no matter how many times we took the Lord's Supper. Amen. Look over at Hebrews, back to Hebrews. I told you to hold your place there in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. Uh, Hebrews 9 uh, and go to verse 22. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. Amen. Amen. It takes the blood of Jesus Christ and Him applying it as the great high priest. So this bread in the Lord's Supper, the bread symbolizes the body of the Lord and the juice 
represents his blood. By the way, just something to note. Um, a lot of people get confused about this. When you study the Bible and you study the Lord's Supper, you know what you don't find? When the Lord's Supper or communion is being carried out, it's never called wine. Check me out on it. It's never called wine. And a lot of people get it, uh, get it messed up and they say, oh, it must be this. No, it's never called wine. Check me out. Look it up. Do your references. I can't do all the work for you. Um, you say, why is that important? Well, some people want to, you know, and the Catholics are one of them. They got the Christian Brothers Distillery out in California. And you see, what do they do? They put fermented alcohol, and that's what they use for the Lord's Supper. It's unscriptural. It's ungodly. You say, why is that? Some Baptists do it, I've heard. What a, what a farce. What nonsense. The Bible says that when you take that bread and what represents the Lord's body, you're supposed to have that bread unleavened. You say, why? Leaven represents sin. Jesus Christ had no sin. He had no sin in his blood and he had no sin in his body. Amen? And you say, what happens to, to take that, that uh, grape juice and turn it, turn it to uh, fermented wine? You say, you add that fermentation to it. You add that leaven. And the Bible says a little leaven, leaven it the whole lump and it'll take it over. And it, and it, and it pictures sin. You go talk to those Jews that clean up before Passover. They sweep out all the cabinets. They do all the stuff. You say, why? To get rid of that leaven. God said, I'll cut you off in the Old Testament. I'll cut you off if I find that leaven in your house. Not a crumb of it. You say, what was that picturing? That's picturing the perfect body of Jesus Christ with no sin and a perfect blood with no sin. So don't start telling me you put alcohol and that represents the blood of Christ. You're wrong. Never could be more wrong if you tried. You're wrong. And it's unscriptural. Amen. Uh, where were we before I got all, all wild there? Uh, so the, the bread symbolizes the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the juice represents His blood. By partaking of these elements, the partakers are saying publicly that they have received His sacrifice as their salvation. Amen? And have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Alright, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. By the way, while we're on that uh, uh, kick... Um, talking about it, uh, we'll go on. I don't want to get too bogged down with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, the Bible says, For I received of the Lord, see that? I received of the Lord, Paul did, that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. So remembrance. Nowhere does he say that this is actually his, his physical um, Blood and his physical body. He said, this is, this do in remembrance of me. He took bread, verse 25. After the same manner also, he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. 
This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. And uh, you, you were in Hebrews. Look at Hebrews again, chapter 10 and verse number 12. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12. Hebrews 10, 12, the Bible says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Amen. Jesus Christ, one sacrifice, one time, one shot. So you say, what does that tell us, uh, preacher? That tells us that there is no saving power used in the elements during the Lord's Supper. Amen? They are not mystically transformed and changed into anything other than what they already are. And that is bread and juice. You say, why? They are symbols. They're symbols. And we pay close attention to the Lord's comments which concern the elements of the Lord's Supper in John chapter 6. Turn there. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Oh, that's, that's what reminded me I, I was going to tell you. Can you imagine being an alcoholic, somebody that maybe got saved and hadn't tasted alcohol in, in 10, 15, 20 years, and you get saved? And you know as well as I do, I've, I've got family that are highly, the Bible calls them drunkards. The word alcoholics does not appear in the scripture. You say, what are they? Drunkards. And uh, they always say something. They, and, and I'm not doubting this. They said, uh, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Well, meaning that at any time they, they have to be careful because they know they could slip back into that. And the Bible warns against slipping back into sin and backsliding. And, uh, and so there might be some truth to that. I'm not arguing with it. But with that thought in mind, you get saved and maybe you go to a Baptist church or, you know, you're, you're trying to get your life together and you go to a Catholic church, okay? And you're lost still, but you're in a Catholic church. And you say, what happens? You get up there to, to take the, the communion, the Lord's Supper, and you take that, take that little cup and you feel that tingle on your tongue and that taste of alcohol gets in and that's enough to send you into a spiral and into the ditch and some may never recover from that. What a shame. What a thing. Amen. John chapter number 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And verse number 63. You say, what is this? Well, pay, pay close attention to the Lord's comments of uh, the elements of the Lord's Supper. John chapter 6. And verse number 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. It's the spirit that quickeneth. Amen. Um, and the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And so the best symbol for the blood of Jesus Christ is grape juice. It's grape juice. It's grape juice. Not any alcoholic beverage. Not any alcoholic beverage. The Lord used fresh grape juice. Um, look over in Matthew. You say, how do you know that? Well, let's turn over there. Matthew. Nothing like a Bible to clear up a um, false doctrine. Amen. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. 
in one hand and Isaiah 65 in another. Matthew 26 in one hand and Isaiah, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament and chapter number 65. So we'll first look at Matthew chapter 26. Let the Bible define itself. Amen. Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 29. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 29. Well, let's, let's back up and get, um, um, let's get the context. Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break, break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks. Notice there in verse 26, he didn't hand out his arm and say, Can you chew on my arm? Or here's, here's a little pinky finger, you know, start gnawing on that and swallow it down. No. He said, this is a symbol. He said, take this bread. It's a, it's, it pictures my body. It's obvious from the context. And um, he said, take eat. This is my body. Verse 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for the many for many for the remission of sins. Now here's the key verse, verse 29. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine. How about that? Until the day when I drink it new. So what is that? It's new with you in my father's kingdom. It's new. It's new. It's, that, it's the pure blood of the grape, the Bible calls it. Look at um, Isaiah chapter number 65. So the Lord used fresh grape juice, um, which is evident from, from comparing Matthew 26, 29 with Isaiah 65. And verse, you better write this down. You better mark it because it'll come up. I'm telling you. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse number 8. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servants' sake, that I may not destroy them all. Now this is a very important point to note in your Bible. In the Bible you've got new wine and old wine. New wine... Where is it found? Look at it. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the, where? The cluster. Taking those fresh grape juice off the vine. The Bible says he was going to drink it new. He's going to drink it straight off the vine and squeeze that right in. Squeeze that right in. That's the same thing. You can study it back there in Genesis. We don't have time to go there, but you can go back to Genesis. And the Bible says he took that wine and it's new wine, and he squeezed it into Pharaoh's cup. That uh, the the cupbearer, he squeezed it, squeezed it into his cup, and it's an, it, that's what the the Bible defines itself and shows you those things. Um, look, let's look a little further here. Let me see if I can give you the reference here. I think it's Proverbs twenty three twenty nine. Let me see if that's applicable to where we're looking at tonight. Proverbs twenty three twenty nine. 
Well, we can look at it uh, if you want to. Turn over to Proverbs 23 and verse 29. Proverbs 23 and verse number 29. You know, you learn a lot from your Bible by studying contrast and studying the differences between two things and studying, studying it that way. And you contrast the things back and forth. And you learn a lot about something by studying what it's not. And you learn a lot by studying what something is. But, a lot, but studying what it is not will tell you a lot as well. Proverbs 23 and verse number 29. And you say, what's the, what's the difference? Well, he's showing you the new wine that's found in the cluster. Um, and then he's showing you the one that's moving itself aright, that's fermented. Uh, you know as well as I do that that fermentation takes place. Uh, Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 29. And when it ferments, what does he say? What happened with Noah back there? The Bible says he drank fermented wine, that wine fermented. And his son, there's a, a, a bad thing happened back there. Won't get into that tonight. Uh, Proverbs 23 and verse 29. Who hath woe? Boy, I've never seen a better description of somebody that's, that's uh, drinking alcohol. Who hath woe? You got trouble? Yeah. Say, so you say that, Pastor? I say that coming from generations all the way back to losing count of alcoholics and, and drunkards in my family. Uh, you say, have you ever tasted alcohol, Pastor? I've never tasted it. Uh, my whole family were addicted to it and around it. Uh, some are in prison. Some sold it. I mean, it was a mess. All that's back there. I wouldn't touch that stuff with a ten-foot pole. No way, no how. Who hath woe? Verse 29. Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? You want sorrow? You want contention? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red. When it giveth its color in the cup. When it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent. And stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women. And thine heart shall utter perverse things. Isn't it something that whenever you... Um, some of you lost people you, you, when you were lost. Some of you people when you were lost say, what did you used to frequent? You used to frequent the nightclubs. And you say, what did they do there? They danced and, and looked for, for um, filthy activity and premarital things going on there. And you say, what was involved? Alcohol every time to ply them with and to get you in a, in a, in a crazy stupor in a state. And you say, what happens when you drink that alcohol? Verse 33, it turns you into a pervert. You know what happened back there in, in Genesis 9 and 10 when you read about Noah and his sons and what went on there? Perversion. Perversion. And you can study that all throughout your Bible. It's connected, alcohol is connected to nakedness and perversion. You don't like that. Well, you better take it up with God and you better take it up with His Word because that's what it teaches. The Bible says there in verse 33, Thine eyes shall behold strange women. And thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast in a ship, the top of the mast. 
and that thing's shaking and, and going back and forth. You ever seen a drunk man when he walks? It's like he, he's got his sea legs and he's trying to keep his balance and all distorted. Lieth down in the midst of a sea. Verse 35, They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. Numbs you. When shall I awake? And you say, what is, what is it? It's addictive. I will seek it yet again. Dr. Ruckman always told us about the Chinese proverb, said, a man take drink, and drink take drink. So when you get that drink, man takes a drink first. I never heard of anybody that liked drinking beer on their first try. They had to force it down until they developed a taste for it. Man take drink, drink take drink. The drink inside of you, in that stomach, it wants to come out and wants more to go with it. Becomes, becomes addictive. Drink, take drink. And then the third thing the Chinese say is drink, take man. Yeah, it'll take you. And so I'm not preaching on that tonight or teaching on that. That's just sort of a side jog. And so the best symbol for the body of the Lord is um, unleavened bread. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Don't get mad at me and don't go out of here saying, well, I don't like what the preacher's saying. Take it up with God. Did God say it? And God define His words in the Bible? And is that what the Lord said? Not what the preacher said. What did God say? Take it up with God. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. One Corinthians chapter five and verse eight. So the best symbol for the body of the Lord is some form of unleavened bread. One Corinthians chapter five and verse eight. The Bible says, "Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." So it's an unleavened bread. That's what that's what God calls for, and so there's. Um, there's an ongoing debate as well when it comes to the Lord's Supper among many um, Christians concerning how the Lord's Supper is to be administered as well as who is able to partake. The two primary teachings are called open communion and closed communion. And since both terms are foreign to the Word of God, you don't find in the Bible, you can't read open communion anywhere in the Bible, and you can't find closed communion anywhere in the Bible, and they're foreign to the Word of God. And they're more of a denominational teaching is what you find. And you say, what do we prefer? We prefer to emphasize, emphasize personal responsibility. As is taught, you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28. And you say it's a personal responsibility and a man needs to examine himself, the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28, when the Lord's Supper is passed and when it's administered in the church, you need to examine yourself. You say, why? The Bible says God only can read the hearts of man. Jesus Christ could read the hearts of man. God the Father can read. The Bible says man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. Amen? The Bible says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. I can't tell. I might be able to guess, but I can't tell who anybody else, if they got saved, if they didn't. I can say, man, it looks like they got a good profession. It matches what they're saying. But I really don't know for sure. Somebody could be pretending. 
And you say, so who knows? God knows. And so they have to take it up with the Lord. You know, somebody could look completely lost. Don't you know that they looked at Lot there in, down in Sodom and Gomorrah there and see him in the gates and with the Sodomites and with everybody? Don't you know that he didn't look like a saved man? Didn't look like it. But the Bible said he had a righteous soul. He vexed his righteous soul from day to day with the wicked. And so you can't look on the outward appearance. And so somebody may come into church there and be sitting down and may not be part of your congregation, and they may be saved as saved can be. They may not look the part. And so if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28, the Bible says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So the Bible says there in verse 28, Let a man examine himself. Amen. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So communion is for believers who have been born again into the family of God. Only God and the individual know his or her heart. And therefore the local church must be very careful about overstepping their bounds. It's our personal conviction and belief that any child of God who has trusted Jesus Christ and him alone for their salvation is as much a child of God as anyone else. We therefore welcome in our church anyone to join us in observing the Lord's Supper if they so desire. We do not call this open communion at all, but rather being silent where the Scripture is silent. And if anything, we, if you want to get sort of technical, and, and that you say, do you believe in open? No. Do you believe in closed? No. I believe in close, close communion with the Lord. I encourage everybody that takes the Lord's Supper to be prayed up, confessed up, and get their sins confessed and under the blood, and then take the Lord's Supper. Amen? As 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 29, 30, 31 tells us, if there's, if there's harboring sin and they're harboring that, and they go maliciously take the Lord's Supper and do that, you say, what happens? They get in trouble with the Lord and they have to pay the consequence. So the Bible says you need to judge your own sins first. So we say close communion. At the same time, any Christian should respect the teachings of a particular local church and don't go in and violate their wishes in this matter. It makes little sense to go intentionally and go into the, the, uh, to another local church and, and try to create bitterness and disunity and animosity among the brethren. So if you strongly disagree with that church and can't worship as you believe, then consider going to another church. It's that simple. Amen? And so I've got your questions here. I know I'm a bit over in time. Just bear with me. I've got the questions and then we'll finish. We'll get two lessons in tonight. So the question is, number one, is the observance, I'll say it again, is the observance of the Lord's Supper essential for salvation? We studied that tonight. Is it essential for salvation? No, it is not. No, it is not. Is it scriptural for the unsaved children, for unsaved children to partake of the Lord's Supper? Is it scriptural? Is it, is it scriptural for unsaved children to partake of the Lord's Supper? No, it's not, it's not scriptural for unsaved children to do that. It's not scriptural for any unsaved to, to take part in it. Amen? Number three, do the elements of the Lord's Supper have any saving power? The elements. The, the, uh, the cup and the bread, does it have any saving power? 
No. Number four, what is the best symbol we can use for the shed blood of Jesus Christ? We looked at it tonight thoroughly. The best symbol. Freshly squeezed or fresh grape juice. Amen. If you can't get it fresh, get it as fresh as you can. Amen. And that's the best symbol for the shed blood of Jesus Christ without fermentation. Amen. Number five, what is the best symbol for his body? Not just bread, but in particular, unleavened bread. That's the best symbol for Jesus Christ's body. I ask you number six, give one verse that teaches the necessity of a blood atonement. Give one verse that teaches the necessity of the blood atonement. Give you a moment to find it there. Tested myself here to make sure I'm getting the right one too. Yeah. The blood atonement. Hebrews chapter number 9 and verse number 22. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22. According to 1 Corinthians, this is number 7, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28, who is to examine the believer before communion? Who is to examine the believer before communion? Who is there? Who's supposed to do that? According to the Bible, let every man examine himself. We don't, we don't pull people off to the left if we don't recognize them and put them in the hot box and put a lamp down on top of them and start questioning them. No, they are to examine themselves and therefore have to pay the consequences if they do wrong after being properly instructed with the Lord's Supper, which I do um, to the nth degree every time we take it. I instruct everyone there to be careful and to take it knowingly and understandingly what's going on. And so the last one here is to encourage you to memorize Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. All right, we'll stop there for tonight and be dismissed now with a word of prayer.